Psalm 16, starting in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider this victim of David, this psalm of David in which he sings and teaches Israel, your people, to sing, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds so that we would preeminently and first hear this as the song of the greater son of David, Jesus Christ our Lord. That your spirit might cause your church to hear Christ singing here. And so to follow him as his people in song. That your name would be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I still remember um, quite well one of my professors during seminary talking about the death of his daughter. Now, his daughter did not die uh, as an infant, or um, his daughter did not die in the womb. His daughter died at around 26 years of age. She was a classroom teacher. No one knew anything was wrong with her at all. She was in class teaching, and she dropped dead suddenly. And my professor at the time, who he's, he's actually now gone to be with the Lord, one of the godliest men I have known, told me that he survived that season of his daughter's death by being in the Psalms. I, I, I'll never forget what he said to me. He told me it was the most painful and difficult time of my life, and yet God seemed nearer to me in the Psalms than I had ever known him before. He knew the experience of the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. But particularly, he found the Lord to be near to him in the Psalms. And the question is, why is that? Why, why is it that I, I can tell you from my own experience of suffering, and I can tell you from walking alongside the saints in our own body as they suffer, that the Psalms provide comfort and give voice to the stirring of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds in a way that few other things do. The Psalms capture 
the stirrings of your soul and give voice to your pain, to your suffering, to your struggles to understand what God is doing, to your sin. The Psalms give voice to your confidence in God, your repentance, your joy in the Lord, your praise of Him for who He is. And that's not just because David and some others, like Asaph, etc., were great writers, though they clearly were. And it's not just because songs have a way of helping us to internalize our theology that we do not yet fully understand, though they do. Thus the importance, by the way, just as a side note, the importance of singing good theology because it causes our hearts to internalize doctrines we, our minds don't even yet fully comprehend. But it's not just that that makes the Psalms so powerful. The Psalms are powerful preeminently so because in them, by the Spirit, we hear our Lord and Savior sing. Above all, these are the songs of the true Israel, the son of David, the head of the church, the Christ. It is in the Psalms, by the Spirit, through human authors, that the Son of God, the Word of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, teaches us to sing. He is the Lord of all creation, and thus he knows how he ought to be praised. He is the Davidic king, the most truly human man who ever was because he did not sin, because he did not know the corruption of the fall, who suffered for us and took our sin for us and was tempted as us yet without sin, and thus he knows how to express what is in our hearts. And if you slow down and really listen to the Psalms, By the Spirit, you can hear the Lord Jesus sing. You can hear him teaching us to sing his praises. So scholars throughout the ages come to a psalm like Psalm 16, and they ask, is this psalm about David, or about Israel, or about Jesus, or about the church? This is through the centuries. To which I want to say, yes! Yes, it is the song of David, but not only David. David was the king of Israel, and as their corporate head or representative, he was teaching his people how to sing, and he was expecting them to sing with him. You you know, saints, right, that singing the praises of God is not an option, it's a command. You don't just get to stand there and watch people sing. You're commanded to sing. To stand there and watch people sing, as you observe, is disobedience. The expectation of the psalmist is that you join him in song because God commands that you do. As their king, he was their representative, and so he taught them to sing. But David knew, I want you to hear this, David knew that the promises, what the promises of God were. And by the Holy Spirit, David prophesied what his greater son, the eternal king, the Messiah would sing as the representative of his people. I'm telling you that David, when he wrote this psalm, knew that Jesus would sing it. 
And that ultimately it was the song of the Messiah. Say, now how do you know that? That's a pretty, pretty tremendous claim. So look at Acts chapter 2. Keep your hand in Psalm 16 and look at Acts chapter 2. You all know this passage as Pentecost, the scene in which the Spirit descends upon the 120 in the upper room, and at at which people are gathered from all the nations, Jews from all the nations of the diaspora are gathered together, and Peter stands up and preaches, and listen to what Peter says as he preaches. If you look down at verse 25, Acts chapter 2 and verse 25, for David says concerning him, he's speaking of the Christ who was crucified and resurrected, Jesus of Nazareth. David says concerning him, Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David says that psalm from Psalm 16 of Jesus. Now look what he says. Brothers, verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him and sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, David foresaw that this psalm is ultimately about his greater son, the one who God covenanted would come in 2 Samuel 7, the Messiah, and that it would be about his crucifixion and resurrection. His eternal reward. David knew he was pointing beyond himself to his greater son, the eternal king, the Messiah, Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, once you hear this, the Son of God was teaching David to sing. Thus we read the Psalms as the songs of Jesus, the divine and human priest king of Israel who alone stands in the place of his people speaking to and for them. And in Christ, by the Spirit, these songs are ours as well. Which psalms are the psalms of the Son? All of them. For he is the representative of his people, the second Adam, the true and better Israel, the Messiah, the Son of David. He is the divine priest king and human priest king, who alone stands in the place of his people speaking to and for them. And in Christ, don't you hear In Christ, by the Spirit, these are our songs as well. Now you might say that just as Jesus is really ultimately the shepherd, the pastor of his church, so Jesus is ultimately the song leader of his church. So as we come to this psalm, let us hear it first as the song that David sang and that the Holy Spirit puts in our mouths, but then let us hear it preeminently as the song that Jesus sang. As David sings and teaches his people to sing, 
I really want us to see nine truths that David teaches us. You, go, you have nine points. It usually takes you 55 minutes to get through three. Nine, they, they're, they're coming quick, though, okay? Nine truths that David teaches us to sing about the Lord and his church in this psalm. Nine truths that David teaches us to sing about the Lord and his church. First, first truth, the Lord is my protector. The Lord is my protector. The one who preserves me, if you will. The Lord is my protector. Look at Psalm 16 and verse 1. A mictum of David. Now, no one quite sure what, it, what the meaning of the word mictum is. We, lots of scholars argue about it. It's likely some kind of musical or liturgical term. Helps them understand how they're coming at singing this psalm. But it's a mictum of David. In other words, he's the one who sang it. That little phrase there that you have is actually originally part of the inspired text. A mictum of David. Look what he says in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you... I take refuge. See, David knows that the Lord is our shelter, the one who preserves us, the one in in whom we take refuge. He's the one who protects us. And he's the Lord, our shelter, our protector in life and in death. That's what he's going to get at the end of the psalm. He's not just my protector now. He's my protector in the grave. He's the only one to whom we can turn. He's the only one who can weather the storms and provide us with safe harbor. Listen, if you don't know this yet, you will someday hit the point where you have no hope apart from the Lord. None. He will graciously, kindly strip you of everything. And you will have no answers. And you will have no promise of better circumstances. You'll have no sense this may come out well. He will be all you have. And and you can say, well, how do you know that? Because death is coming for us all. Every moment, death gets one step closer and will overtake you. What will be your hope then? Who will preserve your soul? Who will be your shelter? Only the Lord, if you know him. We need to sing that now so our souls learn the lesson well when we need it most. The Lord is our protector, our refuge. And God was the protector of our Lord Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in John 12, 27 as he approaches death. Father, save me from this hour. I don't want to go to the cross and suffer your wrath. Save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What an amazing demonstration of faith in the fact that God alone is my protector in life and death. He alone is my protector. I know that I've come to this hour. I know that you're not going to spare me the wrath of God on the cross. So glorify your name because I know I can trust you in this hour. Do you hear the trust of our Lord Jesus as he comes to his darkest hour? 
Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He doesn't want to face the suffering of the cross. He is dreading to such a degree that he that the capillaries under his skin start to burst and he bleeds. He is dreading the eternally painful suffering of the wrath of God for our sins. Yet he knows what the Father has for him. He knows the Father has sent him for this purpose and he knows the Father will glorify his name in this hour. How so? For the Father's love for his people... The Father's love for his people and the Father's righteous justice will be upheld at the cross. That's how the Father will be glorified. Here at the cross, if you will, love and justice kiss. And Jesus knows the Father will resurrect him. And he knows the Father will vindicate his name. And he knows that in the resurrection will be our hope of eternal life and vindication. Thus, Jesus knows that his good, listen, his good and the Father's glory are inextricably tied together. And beloved, so too are your good and the glory of God bound together if you're in Christ. So that no matter what you face, you can sing, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Second truth, the Lord is our only good. The Lord is our only good. Look at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now this is likely David preaching the truth to himself. Notice the name he uses. I say to the Lord, in your Bible it's probably all caps which is the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh, that the Jews would not speak. Y-H-W-H is is how we would transliterate it into English. Um, That name, I, I say to the Lord, the covenant Lord, the one who rescued Israel from Egypt, our Redeemer, the one who made promises to Abraham of our redemption. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. He's preaching the truth to himself. He's reminding himself the Lord has covenanted or promised to be gracious to him. It's stated in a manner that we're being reminded as we sing that, if you will, that we're reminding ourselves. The covenant Lord is our only good. Um, The King James Version actually captures this pretty well. King James Version translates it, O my soul, Thou hast said to the Lord. In other words, it's like you're speaking to your own soul. Reminding yourself of the gospel. We talk about this often. We talk about preaching the gospel daily to yourself. O my soul, thou hast said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Herein, David and all God's people reminding themselves of the gospel that we believe. Please hear me. I do not mean, I do not mean that you're reminding yourselves as the, of the gospel as merely a doctrine to be believed. I mean you're reminding yourself of the gospel that you believe. 
We're not like the character Talkative. There's a character named Talkative in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that book, it will be on the next newsletter as my recommended book. But in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, on the way to the celestial city, heaven, he runs into a man named Talkative. And as they walk around, they, they speak about doctrine. And Talkative speaks really well about doctrine. Talkative has his doctrine down, and he loves to discuss it. He loves to inform everyone around him as to how, um, if you will, doctrinally sound he is. But he lacks a personal knowledge of that doctrine. And at one point, he begins, Christian begins to ask Talkative, actually, faithful Christian's friend begins to ask Talkative about the gospel, and Talkative begins to break it down to him. And then Faithful comes in and says, I want you to understand that, unfortunately, your problem is you're not applying any of this to yourself. He, Faithful says this, we do not just abhor sin in principle and rail against wickedness in principle. We abhor sin in our own lives. And our own sin, we abhor that and we rail against our own wicked deeds. It's one thing to stand up and abhor sin and wickedness. It's another thing to, ab- to stand up and abhor the sin and wickedness in your own heart. He says we don't just exult in the gospel of grace in principle and speak of that grace in Christ in principle. We exult in the gospel of grace in our own lives and we thank God for his grace in Christ that is ours. As Sinclair Ferguson has said, we don't just know and speak of and talk about and contemplate the doctrines of grace. We need to know the grace of those doctrines. That speaks of a personal knowing and appropriation of the gospel. We just don't know that Christ has given himself for the world. You know, Jesus died for the world. Great. That's true. But do you know that Jesus died for me. He gave himself for me. It's not just that some random people out there might be saved. Here's a nice doctrine. But Jesus died for me. I am his and he is mine. He died for my sin. My sin is forgiven. His spirit came for me. He elected me. He redeemed me. He indwelt me. He forgave me. He's my Lord. Jesus taught us to sing this way. We're daily laying hold of Christ and proclaiming our trust in his covenant grace to us as our covenant Lord, our only good. Our only good. Do you believe that? Jesus walks through in in Luke chapter 12 and tells his disciples, you guys are familiar with the passage, I won't read the whole passage, but, you know, don't be anxious. Trust the Lord. He provides for the birds of the air. He provides for the lilies of the field. How much more is he going to provide for you? Trust him. He's for you. He's for your good. He says, don't seek after those things. The Father knows you need them. The world seeks after all of this stuff. The Father knows what you need. Just seek his kingdom and these things will be added added to you. But what's fascinating is the next verse we often stop short. Jesus goes on to say this, Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. 
For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you ever stop and consider that? I'm a sinner. I've railed against God. I've rebelled against God. On a daily basis, I wrestle with the temptation to delight in sin. And I have to fight that and kill it. And sometimes it gets the best of me. Look at who I am. And yet, yet, it's the Father's pleasure, his joy to give me the kingdom. What? The Father rejoices not to give his people the kingdom as if it's some undefined group of people, but to give you, those who are in Christ, the kingdom. It's his joy. He is your only good. Do you trust him? Third, the Lord's people, his church, the Lord's people, his church are our joy. Look at Psalm 16.3. As for the saints in the land, he means the saints on earth, the believers around you, as for the saints in the land, and that's what you're called incidentally in Scripture if you're looking to Christ, you're called a saint. Nowhere in any of his letters does Paul write to you, dear, wretched ones at Corinth. Okay? He writes to the saints, to the beloved of God. He identifies you in Christ. As for the saints in the land, the holy ones in the land, they are the excellent one. Now listen, there's excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Here's King, King David saying, I delight, all my delight is in God's people. That's who my delight in. Is there, as their king, the representative head, my delight, all my delight is in God's people. The Lord's people are his joy. And the question is, do you find joy and delight in God's people? His elect, his church, they are the saints on the earth, those of whom Paul says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. These are the people of whom Paul also says, for what is our joy, or excuse me, our hope, or joy, or crown, or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming, speaking to the church, Paul says this, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's what King David means when he sings of God's people. They are the excellent ones, the noble ones. The world may not see them that way, but the Lord sees them that way in his Son. You want to know what words ought never proceed from the mouth of a pastor? You ready? I've heard pastors say it, and generally, I try to gently or kindly rebuke it. It's not always taken that way, but I I hear this. Ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. I I just want to scream out in Greek. It just comes out in, may magenetah. No, may it never be. Never, may it never be. 
It's just, it's just pure arrogance, isn't it? Perhaps the pastor should say, ministry, wouldn't be, would, ministry would be great if it weren't for my sinful pride. You want to know what Christ's people should never say about their faith? I love Jesus, but I hate his church. Arrogance. It's like saying, I'm God's beloved in Christ, but not them. The Father chose them, the Son died for them, the Holy Spirit indwells them, but I'm too good for them. Beloved, the church is God's delight. The Trinitarian God elected them, gave, if you will, his life for them, as the Son did, and indwells them. Who are you to say you have not, you're going to have nothing to do with them? Listen to how John tells, tells us that Jesus thinks of his people. You ready? In John 13, Jesus says, or John says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, it's the end of Jesus' life, it had come to depart, his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father. Now listen to what John adds this editorial note. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's how Jesus sees the church. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You just meditate on that all day long. For your life, he loved me to the end. He loved them to the end. Am I following him? Spurgeon comments on this psalm, putting the whole psalm in the mouth of Christ. Spurgeon says this, Christ delights in his people, his bride, his glory and joy and crown. He who knows them best, he who knows you best, says of them, in whom is all my delight. They count themselves to be less than nothing, yet he makes much of them and sets his heart toward them. Is that how you see the Lord Jesus? He who knows you best says of you, in whom is all my delight. Fourth, the Lord alone is our God. The Lord alone is our God. Look at Psalm 16, 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In other words, those folks who run after other gods the idolaters. Their sorrows shall multiply, not only here on earth, but in eternity. Their sorrows shall multiply. Look what he says. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. He's talking about pagan worship here. I'm not going to participate in pagan worship or take the names of their gods, take their names, that's the names of their gods, on my lips. What David is saying is that there are many unbelievers who run after other gods and their sorrows shall multiply. And he won't participate in the worship of their idols. He will not even name those idols. Now his point isn't that he won't tell you the names of the idols. There are times when David actually says, this God over here, or that God over here. That's, that's not his point. His point is he will not worship those idols. He will not trust those idols to help him. 
He will trust and praise the Lord alone, and God's people should join him in praising God alone. We are devoted to, set apart, committed to God's praise. We need to know that the idols of this world, the gods and ideologies of this world, will break our hearts, they will multiply our sorrows, and they will damn us. They never deliver. It may appear so for a while, but eventually you'll find that they are deaf, mute, blind, impotent, and damning. And thus our hearts are to be devoted to the Lord and to trust him and to sing his praises alone. We join Israel in singing the Shema, right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We join Jesus as he rebuked Satan who offered the world to him. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Fifth, the Lord is our provision. Hear that. Our provision and our provider. He is our provision and our provider. Look at Psalm 16, 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Notice that. He is the, the provision we get. He is our chosen portion and our cup. And then he goes, you hold my lot. He is our provider. He is the one who is providentially working out all the circumstances in our lives for our good and his glory. He is our provision and our provider. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Listen to how Matthew Henry puts this in different language. Matthew Henry is an old commentator who is quite faithful. Here's how he puts this in different language. Let me have the love and favor of God and be accepted of him. Let me have the comfort of communion with God and satisfaction in the communications of his graces and comforts. Let me have an interest in his promises and a title by promise to everlasting life and happiness in the future state, and I have enough. I need no more. I desire no more to complete my joy. The Lord is our inheritance. He is our provision. Yes, the Lord is our provider, but listen, the greatest thing he provides us with is himself. Not he gives you his stuff. He gives you himself. Look, I I love my wife. When I met her and we were dating, I came to her dorm room to to, to hang out and talk with her and we'd study and we weren't dating yet and, and if she looked at me and said, tell you what, I'll give you all the stuff in my dorm room. I'd have been like, well, that's way short of what I was hoping for. But that's what we do with the Lord, isn't it? We come to the most glorious God there is, the only God there is, the creator and redeemer of all things and we say to him, why don't you give me all the stuff? I don't want you. Those who promise you that mature faith, sincere faith, great faith will deliver you earthly treasures, they demonstrate their vapid and vain theology. They show forth their empty, corrupt, and idolatrous minds. They are, as C.S. Lewis says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. 
they have no sense that God is their great treasure. And David is singing with full knowledge, to quote Matthew Henry again, that God himself is the inheritance of the saints, whose everlasting bliss is to enjoy him. We must take that for our inheritance. Listen, God is our inheritance, our home, our rest, our lasting, yes, everlasting good. And we must look upon the world to be no more ours than the country through which our road lies when we're on a journey. It is because the Lord is his reward, his provision, that Jesus, just Jesus exchanged cups with us. Hear what Jesus says as he served the Lord's Supper for the first time to his disciples. And he took a cup, and when he had given it to them, he gave it, he gave thanks, sorry, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now he is handing them the cup the Lord has provided. The cup he will not drink again with them until he does so in his Father's kingdom. But, but what is the cup he'll drink from? Matthew 26 and 39, as you go down in the passage, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup Pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He drank from the cup of the wrath of God against sin. He drank from the cup of wrath that you and I should be drinking from. Why? So you and I could drink from the cup of the new covenant in his blood. The cup for the forgiveness of our sins. The cup of everlasting blessedness. That's why we can sing, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And that's exactly how Jesus sang it in our place. Sixth, the Lord is our wisdom. Look at Psalm 16, 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. What he's saying is, is that the Lord's word is his wisdom. It gives him counsel. And, and he's meditating on it day and night. And in his, at night, he's in his heart meditating on the word of God. He learns it, and he thinks of it, and he dwells on it while he lays in bed at night. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Or as David's son Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your understanding, own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. He knows that folks will attempt to offer him better wisdom. His own heart will search for other answers, but there are none. There are just the futile explanations of worldly men who are multiplying sorrows to themselves. And we follow our Savior and Lord Jesus who said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. He is my wisdom. 
Friends, Christ is the wisdom of God, Colossians chapter 2. We must sing this. God is our guide, our wisdom, the one whom we trust and who directs our steps. Seven, the Lord is our stable foundation. The Lord is our stable foundation. Or you might say it um, with the metaphor, the Lord is our rock. Look at Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Just looking to him all the time. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. See, the tremors that shake my life, the storms that beat against me can't ultimately shake me if the Lord is my firm foundation. Jesus says this very thing when he says that the wise man builds his house on the rock. No matter what comes, if God is my rock, my stable foundation, nothing can shake me in a way that I'm ultimately destroyed. I may not like what God is doing. I may not understand what God is doing. But I know God is at work for my good and his glory. And he is my rock. As William Cooper said, the bud, the the suffering going through, may have a bitter taste. But sweet will be the flower. Or again, I don't understand. Cooper comes in and reminds us, God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Eighth, the Lord is our resurrection and life. Look at Psalm 16, verse 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the, that's the place of death. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Here's the point. Even at death, even at the grave, Even at the darkest hour, the Lord is still our shepherd, and he will not abandon us. He will not leave us to the enemy of death. He will resurrect us and give us eternal life. So we can sing with David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know the Lord Jesus is the good shepherd who's with you even in death. He's also the one who said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Peter tells us that Jesus sang this line of Psalm 16 as he trusted the Father to resurrect him. And in Christ, we are resurrected spiritually and will be resurrected physically at the end of all things. Do you know him? See, death awaits you if you don't. For the wages of sin is death. You don't look to Christ. Death awaits you. That's all you have looking for to look forward to. And God will abandon your soul to Sheol. But if you're in Christ, through faith, by the Spirit, eternal life awaits you. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know him? Finally, ninth, the Lord is our eternal joy. 
the Lord is our eternal joy. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We will be with the Lord where we will know the fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Jesus sang this at his death, which is why in his most difficult moment of life as he died on the cross, he could say, listen, I want you to understand this. Peter's telling you, me, church, that Jesus, somewhere between Gethsemane and the cross, was singing this psalm, looking forward to his resurrection, looking forward to paying the penalty for the sins of his people, looking forward to the kingdom he would rule with his father, looking forward to the kingdom, the inheritance he would give to us. And so as he sang it, he could say with unfettered joy, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Peter tells us Jesus was singing, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore to which Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand. Listen, as those who trust in Jesus, we also know that his death is our death. We have been crucified with Christ. And his resurrection is our resurrection. Yet I live, not I, but Christ who lives within me. And when our eyes close in death, they open to see joy and glory forevermore. That's why Jesus prays on his last night in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And saints, the good news Good news is that the Father always, always answers the prayers of his Son. Always. Now I want to read Psalm 16 to close. And I want you to hear Psalm 16 in the mouth of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear it as the song of your Messiah contemplating his own death and resurrection, his people, his kingdom, his Father, His eternal joy. As Jesus sings, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you, 
Father will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the Lord Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Let me pray. Father, we ask ask that we would hear this psalm, this song of David, which he sang to you and taught Israel to sing to you, this song that by the Spirit he prophetically wrote about the Christ, the song ultimately that David's greater son, our Messiah, Jesus, sang. I pray that your spirit would help us to hear him sing and that we would rejoice for the opportunity to join him in that song so that your name would be exalted in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.